where I entered these vastly different states of being that I was like, holy moly, we do not understand consciousness at all. Western culture has reduced the spectrum of consciousness to normal everyday waking consciousness. I suddenly became aware of how much of a problem that is, of of how much in, in neuroscience when we're doing research, like how much of a problem it is that we only focus on that because there are so many more dimensions to us being. Those types of experiences are ineffable, uh, spiritual and mystical and psychedelic they're ineffable which means they're very difficult to put into words because the the way that i describe it is like you go from your 2d reality into 3d reality and then you come back to 2d and then you're trying to explain to people in 2d that the circle's not just a circle it's a sphere <laughs> Hi everybody, this is Mind the Shift and I'm Anders. Today we will once again dive into one of the biggest topics of this podcast and possibly one of the crucial uh, topics for humanity as we evolve, bridging science and spirituality. So uh, I am thrilled to introduce you to Mona Sobhani. Welcome to the show, Mona. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Now you're a cognitive neuroscientist, a researcher, and an author. And I would yeah. just read, yeah, I'll just read some of what you write about yourself on your website. You say there that you have always been interested in how science and technology intersect with society. And you've explored this theme through researching cognitive neuroscience and law and neuroscience and in digital health. And recently, you have become interested in consciousness, transformative technology, and exploring how science and spirituality can be bridged together. And because of that latter interest, you wrote a book that was released a couple of years ago. Was it in 2021? Uh, it was last year, actually. Last year. Okay, mm -hmm. so pretty recently. And it's called Proof of Spiritual Phenomena. I have it, I have it here on my... <laughs> oh, I don't know if you can see it. There, there it is. you go. Yeah. And I I think I've I've read it obviously and I think it's groundbreaking. I mean, I can't even begin to express uh, how valuable this effort of yours is because um, I mean, it may not contain very much that is very much very new to people who have uh, I mean, been interested in spiritual matters for a long long time, but it doesn't really matter because you 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 kind of cover it all and and the fact that you have made this journey from hardcore materialism to having a completely open mind towards all things spiritual is priceless, I think. I think every skeptic should read this book, and it should be compulsory reading in every science course. And your book really shows that uh, this uh, shift is possible for, for an intelligent, intellectual, fully functioning, and successful Western academic. But you have to tell me one thing. I can't really understand how you were able to go through this transformation in such a brief period of time, because you began this journey in what, 2018 or something? I mean, that's like yesterday to me. Yeah. Well, it feels like it was an eternity. Um, <laughs> it, let's, yeah, it did start in 2018. 
Um, well, I'm a pretty intense person. And when I get interested in something or it captures my curiosity, um, then it becomes all consuming. And that's what happened with this topic that I just got super curious. And then I obsessed is really the correct word. So, um, you know, turned all my free time and attention into consuming as much as I could um, on the topic, like reading um, books and papers and listening to podcasts and then reaching out to people and speaking to them myself and doing interviews. So it was a lot um, all at once in a very condensed amount. Like actually it's, yeah, it started in 2018. And I think I finished writing the book in early 2021. So it was a few years of reading and integrating and interviewing. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was, it started casual. And then once I had my attention, <laughs> I, I, you know, it became my full-time, like any free time that I had, it became my full-time job. And I think the COVID, uh, you know, lockdown quarantine helped because I was forced to be home and I had all that extra time to focus on this. Yeah. What, what if everyone who were in lockdown, uh, who was in lockdown, would have uh, utilized that time in that way? I mean, we would have had so many fascinating <laughs> books and, and maybe new studies and, and everything would, would have been great now. Maybe we have. I don't know. Yeah, maybe they're maybe maybe we'll they, they, there will come out so many more books and and studies now after this period. We'll we'll see. But mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with with uh, people like Richard Rudd, Eckhart Tolle, Angelo Delulo. I'm, I'm sure Eckhart Tolle is is familiar to you. But yes, yeah. These guys, these these persons, these people, they had all had spiritual awakenings either spontaneously or after some initial effort, mm -hmm. and it took them. It took all of these people between 10 and 20 years to finally be able to explain in a book what they had <laughs> realized but you can I'm, I'm not saying that you had have had a, a spiritual awakening of the same kind as they have but it, it seems as some kind of awakening in a way but you 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 seem to have documented your journey almost in real time as you went along yeah that's that's what I wanted to do um I found that there was a lot of research around these things. Um, and, but what I didn't find a lot of were, like I found a lot of books that summarized research or had theories, but what I wasn't finding, and I guess what I needed was someone's personal story of how they were dealing with a worldview flip. And since I didn't find that, I just decided to write it um, myself because I was thinking, like you said, there's there's not, um, I didn't do any research myself. I didn't want to. Um, I wanted to, just like I do for neuroscience, you know, my, which used to be my day job, um, we search the scientific literature. And a lot of times we have reviews or meta-analyses or summaries of the state of science in some particular field. And we look to that for you know, like a summary of what's going on. And so I kind of wanted to focus on those things instead of, you know, trying to find new information that was more controversial. So in science, um, you know, we we build on each other's work. And then when you have like a summary of something, that's a good idea. To, that's how you get a good sense of what's going on in the field. And I thought, I didn't think that existed 
um, you know, in this field, but it did. And so I was happy to find those and I thought, oh, this is great. And so I could include them in the paper, I'm sorry, in the book, but, um, but I wanted to act also capture my reaction to it because that's what I found was missing from a lot of the other books that I had read. Um, you know, and I was, I was having so much trouble with it. Like flipping a worldview is not easy. It was really difficult. And so I thought, well, I might as well document. And actually that was some of the feedback I got from early drafts of the book. I think early drafts were a little more, um, I mean, I always had my story in there, but they were a little more focused on the evidence or the papers. And then I had friends tell me, you know, like, it would be nice to hear how these findings influenced your life and your journey, or as, as you came to accept things, like how did that impact you? So then I, wow. I started including more of that in the book. That was good, good advice, I think. Yeah. Because I, I think that's one of the things that, that are so valuable with this book that you actually, uh, describe this flip as you say actually there is a book called the flip i, I think you mentioned it yes. in the book yeah which is yes, yes. i haven't read it myself but i think it's more or less uh, similar in a way or well it's written by jeff kripal who's a professor yeah. at rice university he's the chair of religious thought and philosophy there and he right he's been writing about these phenomena from a comparative religion standpoint for his entire career And he wrote this book called The Flip in 2019 about scientists who have flipped. And he talks about how it takes a personal encounter with the impossible, he calls it, um, for a scientist to flip. And then the book contains a few stories of, sci of you know, I don't know, oh, quote yeah. unquote famous, okay. so but it's not a popular story stories. about his, his own flip, so to speak. But no, it's, no, it's not yeah. his personal. It's um, so it should be compilation. The, the flips, really. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Fascinating. Well, I, you mentioned so many books in in your book. It's it's as I say, it's very difficult to find anything that you haven't covered in this area. I, I, I will try to I will try to ask you about a few things that I didn't find there. But anyway, you talk about uh, uh, old. I think already on page one, you talk about old me and new me, which is mm -hmm. uh, nice. I think because that tells. Speaks volumes about what you've gone through here. Uh, so, how different are you now after just, I mean, three, four years of researching into this, diving into the spiritual realm? Do other people notice change in you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I became much more open-minded. I mean, I think that coming from like a standard Western scientific worldview. We, even though scientists tend to know that we don't know everything, you know, and we know that there's limits to science, but we get kind of comfortable in our authority and our expertise, and we have confidence in our worldview. I think for, I mean, obviously I don't want to speak on behalf of all scientists, but um, that's how I felt. And I think that um, as I was encountering all these classes of you know, evidence, whether it's empirical or scientific in varying degrees. Um, I think that I just started to, I mean, I had an ego struggle. <laughs> That's where that part comes in. Like it was not easy. I'm, I'm going to make it sound like it was easy, but it wasn't easy, but I had this, well, you ego know, death is never easy. Yeah. To, to like, let go of this 
box. Like basically I think of it as like a perception box or like a box of beliefs that we create that we stay within. And whenever things come in that don't match your, you know, you just kind of ignore it. Um, and that's the way the human mind is built. Sometimes if someone says something that you're not familiar with, it kind of just bounces off. It takes a, because, because it takes a lot of energy, like brain energy to pay attention, to recognize that you don't understand that. And then it takes curiosity to go explore, but that takes a lot of energy and people don't usually have time for that. So uh, I had gotten comfortable, you know, in my box, but I think, I think after continuously and that was the other thing was like I I would keep encountering new levels there'd be new levels of things that were impossible or that I I couldn't believe like my mind was being blown constantly with each new interview um to the point where uh, I just was like oh I I can't uh keep expanding that well I can keep expanding the box but I was kind of like I just want to let go of the box totally and just say we just we don't know and and kind of make those boundaries more loose and more open so that when people say things to me, you know, my, like I say, old me would have been very judgmental. Um, so if someone was talking about some spiritual experience they had or something, I would immediately be like, oh, you know, that was probably just hallucination. You, or something. you were hungry. Yeah. You didn't drink enough water, your electricity flickered, you know, whatever, some standard explanation, but then new me would just, you know, I just try to listen. <laughs> with curiosity about what is it in this person's experience um, that makes them that you know that had such a pro profound effect on them that convinced them that this thing that happened to them was real like what is the meaning it has for them um, you know and just kind of being curious about it so I think I'm definitely I try to be anyway you know it's a it's an exercise and a practice to be open minded and just you know, listen with a little more compassion, because I think that we tend to immediately just judge and shut down. I definitely, that's what I used to do. And I started realizing that, you know, in fact, that doesn't really serve me and it doesn't really serve the person who's telling me the story. Um, and, you know, it's just not the best use of our interaction with each other. So, um, and by shutting down, it, it just served that purpose of I want to stay in my box and I don't want your information to to widen my box. So, you know, I ignore it. But yeah, so Numi was more like, oh, let me just listen. Yeah, I think that's so good that you've uh, ended up there in that place. I mean, it's kind of sad, really, that so many of us, I mean, you, your old you was, was very, I mean, uh, representative of, of all the, the, the whole scientific community or the community in general, I would say the society in general, that people are uh, kind of used to thinking of the scientific, the, the, the Western scientific um, model as, as the truth. And if, if, if somebody is telling you something that's way out of that <laughs> box, as you say, then, then you kind of, Many people kind of see it as a good thing to to either ignore it or to reject it, but it's it's really very arrogant, isn't it? I mean, phenomenologically, everybody has their own experience of things, and you should you should really respect every every person's experience of anything, really. Yeah, and um, that's true. I mean, one of the core um, you know problems in neuroscience is consciousness which we um define as you know like our experiences of being ourselves like i i have no idea what it's like to be you and you'll and you don't know what it's like to be me right and each person the, their experience of themselves and their experience of 
life and reality is unique to each person. And in even in neuroscience or psychology, we have no way of measuring that. Um, so, you know, you really do have to take people at their word. And somebody did a really good, um, this um, philosopher I follow did this really nice um, presentation recently about this, about how Western culture has narrowed the spectrum of consciousness that's, you know, acceptable. And so in the past, um, you know, like uh, indigenous cultures and uh, all kinds of cultures all around the world throughout the history of humanity have used trance states, you know, like drumming or chanting or singing or humming or meditating to, um, these are like altered states of consciousness to have other types of experiences, right? Other types of human experiences. Um, but Western culture has like narrowed that spectrum to like just ordinary daytime or whatever, like awaking consciousness is the only acceptable one that we use for acquiring knowledge or verifying things. But it hasn't been like that for the majority of human history. And that's just, uh, you know, that's just how it is right now, but it hasn't been like that. And it's not like that in many cultures. So I think bringing that perspective in really helps you kind of understand um, why we are where we are. Is there still anything in, in this spiritual realm or whatever you want to call it, the, the non-physical realm that, that you still balk a little bit uh, uh, when you hear about, uh, that you still feel that, oh, no, I'm not going to go there. That's too woo-woo. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't really... No, I mean, not really. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll, li I'll listen to anything. I'm not an expert on everything. I don't read about, uh, for example, I, I mean, I don't even know, like, uh, maybe, you know, I'm not that, I'm not super interested in UFOs, for example, <laughs> even though I know that that's coming out, but I'm aware that it's because of the speed people I interviewed for my book, I'm aware that that's actually related to consciousness. In the past, I was really not interested. I was, you know, when I was interviewing people for the book and they would bring up UFOs, I'd be like, please stop. I'm not interested. I will, I will zone out of this conversation if you start talking about aliens. Um, but then you know, these were scientists that I was speaking to and they were saying like, well, you know, we think there's a component of consciousness. And so, I mean, I looked into it and it was interesting, but I wouldn't say I spend a huge amount of time on it. Um, yeah. I mean, I listen and read everything just because I think genuinely it's hard for me to now imagine that people are making up this, these stories because you just see such, um, consilience across cultures, across time that even and I, I think we just get too caught up too in the definition of real because of our worldview, which is that reality is made of physical matter and everything's physical and only physical things are real. And I just think that's where the problem comes in, in conversations with people where it's like, you're not even speaking the same language. You know, to me, it started with that. It's, I was like, what's real? What's not? I want the mechanism. What's the science. And then after digging into this for a while, you start to realize that it's not that simple. Um, and when you start to think of it from a consciousness perspective, you're like, what someone perceives is real to them. What else is there? Our consciousness is our reality. It's the beginning, the middle and the end. That's it. So you kind of, uh, you can't really tell somebody that they didn't experience something, even though we do that all the time. So I think for me, that's where the part of the flip happened was 
I can't tell you that what you experienced isn't real. Nobody can. Mm. So it's bringing the the curiosity to that instead of saying, is what you experienced real or not? It was real to you. So (laughs) you have to kind of start there. Yeah. I mean, so many philosophers and and also scientists these days are, are, are talking about reality in this way, I mean, more and more, it's it's still not the, the mainstream, of course, uh, as your as your book is pointing out very eloquently. But uh, this is what you what you just described is what, as far as I understand, what would be could be called idealism. Would you say that you're an you're an idealist? That which meaning that consciousness is primary and everything 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 arises from consciousness. So so matter is secondary. Matter is is a is an expression of consciousness. Are are you there or? Yeah, I mean, I try not to box myself in anymore, but I do think that. I think probably consciousness is fundamental, and I think that, I think, some people get nitpicky about that, and they'll be like, "Well, how do you define consciousness?" And it's like, "Give me a break. No one knows." Okay, <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean you know, I don't know. It's some type of energy, some type of information like fit. I don't know what it is, but I do think that um, that kind of model accounts for more um, classes of impossible or anomalous phenomena than does a materialist physicalist paradigm. So you, and and that's actually what Jeff Kripal says in that book, the flip and in a lot of his other writings is that you have to ignore so much evidence to make the materialist physicalist paradigm work. But if you ignore, if you can't account for data points in a model, then it's not a very good model. And so, I mean, that's how I came or come to my conclusion or, I, you know, I try not to conclude, I'm still exploring, but I just know that that model cannot account for a lot of experiences. So, uh, you know, I look at other models that that do account for those. Yeah, we'll get back to to the, Science and the bridging of science and spirituality in in a few minutes here, but I want to want to rewind a little bit to your journey here, your personal story, before we we de- delve into the <clears throat> the science and the the, the <laughs> esoteric questions here. You you were a devoted physicalist before this journey started, but as it turns out, and you tell this in the book, you had some experience of quote unquote unexplicable or unexplainable phenomena among them readings in coffee grounds so tell us about that yeah so i'm i'm persian by heritage my uh parents my grandparents are from iran and in our culture we use we can use a lot of different things for divination but um in our family they my grandmother would use coffee grounds it's not like american coffee grounds it's like a thicker coffee that you leave the grounds in the cup and when it dries it forms pictures and if you have a reader or an intuitive they can look at the pictures and intuit things about your past present and future and my grandmother could do it and my mom does it still and my mom would do readings for people at our family parties and stuff and then she would do it for me when I was in graduate school and I didn't believe in it I just you know I ignored it but she would read for me and then I started taking notes and I I noticed that she was more right than she was wrong. And, you know, so if she warned me, you know, don't make sure you pay your bills or it looks like you might lose money, be careful not to, like I would take it seriously because she was <laughs> usually right. And so I couldn't explain it with science. I definitely couldn't explain it with reductionist material science because it's like 
coffee grounds in a cup. Like, how could that possibly mean anything? You know, like even stepping into old me, my shoes, it's like, you know, it's laughable from a materialist perspective. Um, Or the closest thing, um, you know, the closest explanation would be that that person subconscious has picked up things about you and your life and that in looking at the pictures it evokes things that that coincidentally turn out to be true but the things that my mom would say would be months in advance and they would be things that I wouldn't know were coming that she would have no way of knowing like things at work that were outside of both of our you know what I mean it was things that there's no way (laughs) that she could know that or that I could know so you know and it took many years to take it seriously. But after a while, I was like, you know what, I don't know how it works, but it works. And I just lived in cognitive dissonance um, with that. Like many people do, I think. Yeah, it's true. Everyone has their superstitions. I was just at a conference, uh, a psychedelics conference last week, the MAPS one in Denver, and I was uh, speaking to a physician and he, we were talking about this and he said, you know, he's like, I always say I'm an atheist and I'm a materialist. He's like, but you know, I partake in my cultural, um, you know, rituals and our traditions. And he's like, and I am kind of superstitious, you know, he's like, I'll, I'll knock on wood or or whatever. (laughs) And he's like, he's like, so if I really want to be honest, you know, he's like, I'm, I'm not like my behavior suggests that. I actually believe in something more. He's like, but it's just my mind that wants to say that I don't. And I was like, well, that's great. That takes a lot of self-awareness to be aware of that. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, yeah. that's really honest. And it's so fascinating because, I mean, this is actually what's what's going on. We are like, it's like Eckhart Tolle said when after he had his awakening that he suddenly realized that there were kind of two people inside here or wherever it is. I don't think it's in the brain, but I, I don't think you do either. But it's like, we we do some things and we we tell people some things and we have we have this facade, but then there is all this other conversation going on so, going on somewhere inside us which contradicts often what what we do and say and it it's not everybody has this, yes and we don't we don't even I mean reflect upon it because but but it's actually some kind of I don't know if you could say evidence but it's an indication that there is something more than just this one physical. Uh, you know, uh, expression of of ourselves. Yeah, and um, I think we're we see in some schools of thought in psychology and definitely in neuroscience experiments, you do see that there are actually many personalities or many aspects of ourselves. Um, so we are, we think of ourselves as one personality, but it's um, it's not true. Like even in neuroscience when you know they used to do these experiments where they would cut the neurons that connect the two hemispheres of the brain the corpus callosum and you see two totally different personalities in the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere like completely different people like different favorite colors different preferences for room temperature different handwriting mm-hmm. <laughs> like you uh so there really is you know we are way more multifaceted than than we're aware of even from a biological materialist perspective. Um, But bringing in that spiritual perspective too, like during my own journey, I I remember that when I started digging into all of these weird topics, I remember my ego was flipping out. It was like, oh no, like the type of person who's like reading about reincarnation, you know, like, oh, I'm so ashamed. But then my 
you know, soul or whatever. Like another part of me was like excited and happy to be reading about it because I was curious about it. So I was feeding that curiosity and I was having fun. And it was like, I was more, um, you know, uh, energized than I had been in a long time. And so I, you know, I got to observe that difference of like, oh, I thought that my, you know, ego and personality was my whole thing, but she's upset. Um, but then this other part of me is really happy to be have, you know, to have found these interesting topics and to be reading and learning about it. So yeah, there's a lot of different parts of ourselves, I think. And, yeah. um, and this I mean, most of us realize that, I mean, we don't call ourselves schizophrenics because <laughs> that's what you would, that conclusion, you would draw that conclusion conclusion if you have a very simple-minded view of, of what, a, what a person is, if you realize that you have several different personalities with, within you. But I mean, yeah, sorry, just to... Yeah, we tend to integrate sidetrack. and um, um, switch between them seamlessly. So, yeah. yeah. So, well, anyway, you you had this, uh, your mother did these readings in coffee grounds. And then, uh, cut a long story short, I guess, uh, as far as I understand, you had this, you went through this proverbial dark night of the soul when when a relationship ended. And that's was what triggered your transformation. Is that correct? Um, Well, I was already having an existential crisis, sort of. I was already kind of, you know, by the time I finished graduate school, I was... Um, they they train you that the you know universe is random, dead, and meaningless. That any meaning that you create comes from your brain. That your brain is a coincidence detector, so it looks for coincidence and it creates stories and creates meaning. So all meaning comes from you. So any sense of like a magical enchanted universe I may have had before graduate school was definitely stamped out <laughs> by the end of it. And then I you know entered the working world. And I kind of had this existential crisis of like, oh my God, is this what we do forever until we die? And um, so I was already in a weird existential place. And then actually um, my mom had seen uh, um, a death in the years before the breakup um, in the coffee. And I tell that story in the book, but that was a crucial turning point. I didn't do anything at that point, but it shook me. It shook my foundation of my understanding of reality because up to that point, everything from the coffee grounds had just been like, don't lose money or you might switch offices or, you know, whatever, little things. But this was life or death. And so it really shook me, um, you know, because it was like six weeks, seven weeks in advance, she warned me and I couldn't get, I couldn't understand how, the information of someone's death could, you know, come travel in like <laughs> through these <laughs> like I just I it so it it disturbed me, but I didn't do anything. And then two years, I think two years later, yeah, this relationship ended, but I already had all this other stuff going on in the background. <laughs> so that that was just the final like like okay. I had already lost the other legs of the stool, and then that was just the last one. Yeah, yeah. and then I had a dark night because then I felt like I didn't. Yeah, I did not understand the universe that we live in or what the point of all of this was. Um, but how so could you just, muster the energy being in that state? How could you muster the energy to to decide to start writing a book? I mean, that takes a lot of energy and effort. That uh, didn't happen until, let's see. Um, until you came out of it a little bit, maybe? Yeah, until I came out of it a little bit. It took a few months and then my... Um, I think what happened was, oh yeah, you my went, friends, you went to other intuitive readers, right? 
Yeah. My, my girlfriends in Los Angeles were like, let's, you know, we're in LA. So there's a lot of psychics and intuitives and they're, they, they had gone, they, they knew some good ones. So they were like, let's go, you know, it'll, apparently it was a thing my friends would do when it, they were going through something difficult, they would go see a intuitive. So I, I went with them and then the lady's reading blew me away. You know, she knew things like really detailed things that were like said you know, like things, there's no freaking way she could know. <laughs> so she blew my socks off and then I got curious. Can you, te- can you t- t- tell details about that or is it too personal? I mean, you, you don't have to. I mean, are- I mean, I have to try to remember. I just, I mean, she, for one thing, she mentioned like a, 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 a few, a past trauma from my childhood um, that like somebody was, was hurt. Uh, another child was hurt. And, um, Anyway, and she got the body part, right? And then she got the like city that they moved to afterward, right? The city. I mean, like who I even- mean, that's pretty detailed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like the city in America of all the cities. Uh, like it was, and it wasn't in California. So, you know, it wasn't like a local guest. I mean, so it was things like that, that I was just, you know, I, I think I just kept saying like, how did you know that? How did you know? <laughs> I didn't believe in it at that time. So I was just like, how is this lady doing this? Um, But then that made me curious. And so we went to a few more readings. And then I was like, what if we swap readings? Will they make sense for, you know, each of us? Because if they're vague or general, like people say, we should be able to swap them. But they weren't, they were very specific to each of us in our lives. And so um, I I thought there was something there. But I still didn't, that was months and months in the making. And I didn't do anything. I wasn't listening to anything spiritual at that point, um, I was just kind of like existing <laughs> barely. And then I think it was um, this podcast episode that I serendipitously heard. Like I was reading Chelsea Handler. She's a comedian in the US. I was reading her book and she had a podcast episode where she had um, a psychic medium on Laurel and Jackson. And uh, Chelsea Handler at the time was a skeptic. So I was like, why does she have a psychic medium on? <laughs> and then the psychic medium started talking about a spiritual framework that like reincarnation and soul lessons that I had heard in the intuitive readings from my, the ones I went to, but that had gone over my head because I didn't know what that meant. I had no familiarity at all with um, spiritual framework. So when they had said in the readings, I just ignored it. And, but I had written it down. And then when I heard her interview, I was like, Oh, is this a thing people believe in? Um, And then she mentioned that she had had, her brain um, measured, like she had been in neuroscience studies to measure her reading states. So of course that got my attention because I was like, what, who did this research? Where's the published paper? And, um, and then that, and then, so that sparked my actual scientific interest. And then they also mentioned a book called Many Lives, Many Masters by Brian Weiss on the Mm. podcast episode. Mm. And so I ordered that because they said it was a psychiatrist case study. I didn't know it was about past life regression. So when it arrived and I started reading it, I was pretty surprised. But um, that whole that whole podcast episode and that book are were kind of the tipping point of, uh, you know, I was like, uh, I think that scientists and doctors um, ha- are interested in this. And, you know, that was kind of my permission slip. Yeah, <laughs> to get yeah, curious yeah. about it. That's, it's it's so fascinating and wonderful. I think I have, I might be wrong, but I think I have that book by Brian Weiss in my in my shelf, one of my shelves here. Uh, yeah, it's a short, I, easy read. Yeah, I think if I have read it, I think I read it. <laughs> must have been twenty five years ago or something. I mean, I've been, I've been into this. I've been 
not very much into it, but I've been interested in this since I was a kid, really. And so it's it's so fascinating that all these terms and this terminology, this spiritual terminology that you talk about in the book, that it was all new to you just three, four years ago. And now yeah. you've written a book about it. And I mean, I've heard about these things since, I mean, what, 40 years back? And I, I haven't written a book about it as as yet. I might do because I get inspired by, by what you've done here. But uh, anyway. You should. <laughs> yeah, maybe at one point. Uh, yeah, um, I'll think about it. <laughs> so let's let's dive a little bit into the um, the esoteric stuff and the and the, the combo of spirituality and science, which is, I mean, there is no real border, is there? Uh, if you look at it deeply, which you have done, I sometimes think of uh, this um, these phenomena as, like if if you use Occam's razor, you know this scientific philosophical tool that basically means that the simplest explanation is often the correct one you don't have to have any cumbersome and and uh, you know meticulous theories around it but the simplest and most intuitive explanation is often the correct one and many times a non-physical explanation or an intuitive explanation is the simplest and the most straightforward one to explain some kind of spiritual phenomenon but it's like in 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 the conventional scientific community or realm it's like the burden of evidence is somehow sneakily turned around it's like they say you must prove this with our scientific tools <laughs> would you agree that this is how it works yeah i mean i think that um scientists yeah they want to have you want to have uh, equal footing i guess to compare evidence um so they're looking for yeah, it's sort of like, I mean, the worldview dictates what um, you consider acceptable evidence. So since they're coming from a materialist, physicalist worldview, uh, you know, uh, physical evidence that we can measure um, on something or somehow is usually the metric, you know, that's considered good evidence. That's just the way it is. Um, and even, even not even looking at spiritual stuff, I mean, even in neuroscience and psychology, a person's, we call it subjective report of something is not as, um, trustworthy as like brain data that we're recording with an MRI machine. But the kind of like catch 22 around that is that Again, <laughs> subjective experience is all we have. And the only way you we can't measure someone else's subjective experience. So their self-report is all we ever have. And um, like brain data is meaningless without understanding what the person is experiencing. Yeah. So yeah. So Sorry. I mean that's that's why they they want that, but yeah. Yeah, but it's like well, it it comes down to the the, the issue of consciousness, I guess, especially in your field, neuroscience. Because consciousness is what what people are researching or, or uh, studying in that field without actually maybe thinking about it all the time that that's what they're doing. But it, it, that's it's it's a good example. You, you're talking about the catch twenty two here, which I think is exactly right. Because um, and I talked about the the reversal of the burden of evidence here, and it's really all, almost a comically salient example when you talk about the hard problem of consciousness. Because I mean, the the simple ex, the simplest explanation using Occam's razor is that that consciousness isn't physical because everybody can 
if you go into yourself, if you you don't even have to meditate, but if you do that, you can you can sense that there is something. I mean, you don't even know, you can't even pinpoint exactly where you are, and there there, there isn't even any you. It's just an existence. It's just an awareness, and it's mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. and it's like. But these scientists, they're kind of cutting up brains and <laughs> measuring neurons firing and and trying to, to to pinpoint exactly where is this happening where is it produced but it's like i don't know it's it's they would never find it because it's uh i mean the burden of evidence is 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 turned the, the, the wrong way why do they even try i mean and and also how how is it possible that neuroscientists aren't pondering or maybe they are pondering the hard problem of consciousness every day in their work <laughs> Um, most of them are not because they're so most impossible to do your work if you're stuck on the hard problem because you can't really get around it. But there are neuroscientists who are focused on the problem of consciousness. And, um, you know, there's a few different models proposed, a few leading theories in mainstream science. And I've seen lately in scientific, um, journals, actually, more and more. I've seen a few of these models published recently, which I think is, is we're seeing the paradigm shift um, a little bit because I'm seeing models proposed that are moving away from exactly how do the neurons firing and connecting with each other produce consciousness? Like that's the usual question. And I'm seeing theory, like I included one in my book, but that's not the only one that I've seen lately. There's a few that say, okay, what if um, consciousness is an energy field? Let's say it's the electromagnetic energy field and it runs through everything and that the interaction of the field with our biological brain somehow you know, filters it through. I've seen other models that say the interaction, uh, interaction of the field with the brain, the actual interaction is consciousness. I've seen like multiple different models. So I mean, the truth is no one knows, but I do think you're seeing now an expansion of the models moving past just the brain. I mean, are those mainstream theories? I think not yet, but it doesn't matter. Um, getting there. It sounds promising. Still, yeah. Yeah, they're still being published. And I mean, this year we're going to, I'm helping organize a panel at the um, Society for Neuroscience, which is our big annual conference every year. So for alternative models of consciousness. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah. So uh, is this enigma of consciousness what captures your attention the most in this uh, intersection between science and spirituality? Or are there other areas? a good question um i mean i think that when i started being interested in this stuff i do think actually no i was actually very resistant i don't like the top i used to not like the topic of consciousness uh before any of this stuff happened to me as a neuroscientist if you mentioned consciousness to me it was on the same level as ufos where i was like that is too philosophical. Get it away from me. I don't care. It's too hard. We don't have an answer. Every, you know, it's too, um, it's too philosophical. It's just a philosophical problem that we cannot get around. And so I just wasn't interested in it. Um, and it was only through this whole experience that I started to 
be interested in consciousness and and honestly through my own experiences like through meditation or breath work or psychedelics where i entered these vastly different states of being that i was like holy moly we do not understand consciousness at all like the 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 how i mentioned earlier how western culture has reduced the spectrum of consciousness to normal everyday waking consciousness i suddenly became aware of how much of a problem that is of of how much in in neuroscience when we're doing research like how much of a problem it is that we only focus on that because there are so many more dimensions to us being and it's again it's hard to put into words because those types of experiences are ineffable uh, spiritual and mystical and psychedelic they're ineffable which means they're very difficult to put into words because there's just no words uh to explain it i mean the, the way that i describe it is like you go from your 2d reality into 3d reality and then you come back to 2d and then you're trying to explain to people in 2d that the circle's not just a circle it's a sphere you know and it's yeah. but they can't picture it if they haven't experienced it. And so um, I think that through, yeah, I think that I became more interested in the philosophies and the implications of those philosophies through personal experience. Um, Because without that, it's still just philosophical. And I don't know, I'm just not that interested in philosophy, (laughs) personally. But through the experiences, I was like, what did I just experience? Oh, my God, I'm so much greater. <laughs> my consciousness is so much greater. There's so many different ways to interact with reality. You know, yeah. like did, that kind of thing LSD opens up to you. you or was <laughs> yeah, LSD. Um, yes, psilocybin. I mean, also, a few different okay. ones. I mean, yeah. even MDMA, right, is like um, expands your emotional landscape in mm. such a vastly different way. Like you didn't even know you could feel of the range of emotions again it's like going from 2d emotions to 3d emotions and Mm. um you just can't believe that you live such a limited you know like Mm. everyday reality so Mm. i think yeah because of those experiences uh but you know you don't have to do drugs obviously you can achieve all those states through breath work or meditation but um slipping into those states i think makes you much more interested in the philosophical like are we you know panpsychism or idealism or (laughs) <laughs> or whatever yeah. it is, cosmopsychism. Like they just become more interesting. Psychedelics are slowly becoming more and more accepted again, as they were in the fifties before they were all banned mm-hmm. as narcotics. But now they're slowly becoming accepted again as as um, as like medical treatments for people pe- pe- with PTSD, for instance, or yeah, I mean all kinds yes. of stuff. And uh, I think that's also a promising sign. Yes. Yeah. Um. I think it's great. I do think there's going to be, I think there's some dangers there too, but you know, we'll see. I, I think it's, I like psychedelics and altered states because they're the intersection of like science, spirituality, you know, like and the human experience just as a whole, they're this nice, um, there. And, oh, I was going to say the other thing, um, so philosophy to me is interesting to sit around, you know, and think about, but I do like to focus on what's practical and what can improve my, my day-to-day everyday living. And I think experiencing those altered states, I think does help. I think spirituality enhances like, you know, my personal interaction with everyday reality, day-to-day living. So 
I, I'm actually like, I know some people really like to focus on the philosophy and I'm happy to think about it and talk about it, but I really think, you know, it's like what's useful for people in their everyday day-to-day living. Um, Mm -hmm. If it helps you, like if it relieves your suffering to understand that everything is conscious, then that's beautiful. But if it doesn't, then then who cares? <laughs> well, it's a wonderful endeavor. I mean, everybody can't be a philosopher. That wouldn't work. Eight billion philosophers <laughs> wouldn't no, work. No, definitely not. So I'm happy that some people want to do the, I mean, right. the hard work or the, I, the practical work, the practical stuff. So yeah, how, how known and how accepted is it among scientists, neuroscientists uh, in particular, that that when you take psychedelics, the brain actually is not even not not exactly turned off but it it's it um its activity diminishes significantly and because i mean i think it was a study back in 2012 that found this for the first mm-hmm. time it's been i think it's been replicated after that uh, because before that everybody assumed that the brain would i mean be lit up like a, a christmas tree when when it took psychedelics right. because people had these amazing experiences but it's the other way around isn't it and how how known is that and how accepted is that um, that's a good question. I mean, for people who uh, pay attention to psychedelic neuroscience, I think it's pretty well known, but I don't think that everybody pays attention to that yet. I don't know how widely known it is, honestly, but although I've had a lot uh, of I people mean, it's, ask me. It's crucial, isn't it? It's very crucial for the, for the understanding of the brain, what the brain does and what the brain is and what it produces yeah. and what it doesn't produce. Yeah, and they're continuing to do um, uh, neuroimaging studies. And I mean, I think the... The tough thing with neuroimaging, because I used to do this work, so is that you it, it's so noisy, like the pictures are noisy. You have to run all of these statistics to get anything meaningful. And uh, it's so expensive to run even one patient. That's why all neuroimaging studies are, always have small populations because it's so f- expensive. Like I, I think it used to be like, five or $700 per person or something like it's so expensive. So um, the, the problem with the studies is that we need a lot more. We need so many more studies, so many more people's brains scanned to say anything truly meaningful, but you are right that the evidence that's coming out so far, um, it shows a few interesting things. One is that is everyone, because when you're on a psychedelic, it's like the world is sparkling and like everything is alive that there's so much stimulation that your brain must be firing on all levels but they found in some of the earlier studies that there was actually reduced activity in certain areas and i think overall in general there was reduced activity i don't know if i don't know for certain that that's held up across all studies and all substances that's another thing is mm. all the substances are different but um but i do know that they have found uh, and, you know, again, so much work is needed, but they found that the default mode network, which is the network in the brain that is focused on yourself, um, it's called default because when you go into default mode, when you're not thinking or not talking to someone, what do you do? You think about <laughs> yesterday, what you're going to do in the future. You're basically thinking about yourself usually. So default mode. Um, but they found in meditators, uh, experienced meditators that they can dampen activity in that. And they found that in certain psychedelics too, that that activity in that network is dampened, which basically means it takes the focus off of you 
and expands it outward, or it diminishes the boundary between you and other, which is exactly the experience you have on psychedelics, which is that it's not so clear where I end and you begin or where I end and the table begins. Like all these boundaries become blurred. Um, And another thing they found is that your brain, you know, gets used to firing um, in certain patterns, right? And it's like lazy, it takes energy to change those patterns. But what psychedelics do is it breaks open those patterns and allows new connections to be made. So that's why you see people able to change their behavior more easily. That's why psychedelics paired with psychotherapy um, helps people change and cure, you know, um, PTSD or cure traumas because they're able to um, actually change those circuits much more easily than a psychotherapy alone or even psychedelics alone like together it works it works best so there's yeah those are a few of the findings um that are pretty promising but yes the uh i think they need to do a little more work on that but it was uh shocking and it does tie back to it, some of the theories uh about broader consciousness like aldous huxley in his book doors of perception propose that there's a mind at large, you know, like a field of consciousness and that if our brains filter the field and like on psychedelics, you open the filter and you can see more. And that's what people got excited about from from those initial neuroimaging findings. Um, But yeah, we'll see. I mean, there's a lot of, I just came from the MAPS conference and there is so much research being done. It's really exciting. Huge props to them because they're moving at an astronomical pace. Those scientists are doing great. Kudos to them. Yeah. Uh, So how did we end up here? How do you see the split between science and spirituality or science and religion, perhaps in the, back in the, I guess it was in the 17th century, more or less. Did we throw out the baby with the bathwater? Yeah, and I, uh, I, d- I do. I think so. And I've been, I think we're seeing in a lot of uh, fields actually. I, I've just been connecting with some people from not science, <laughs> some other fields like finance, <laughs> not science, um, not science, yeah, or, or spiritual. Big, um, pretty big field. That, uh, yeah. I mean, there's this thing called the meaning crisis that everyone talks about. That every, you know, that there's like I said, like our scientific Western worldview is, is such that the universe is meaningless. There's no meaning out there. It's up to you to create meaning. It comes from your brain. But I think that people struggle to do that because in the past, before the enlightenment, right, we had religion that was like inherited and you didn't question it. And it gave you meaning and a structure, a spiritual structure in your life. And then for good reasons, you know, the scientific revolution and the enlightenment were like, well, religion is abusing its privileges and we need to, you know, and they, they had these discoveries in science that propelled our technology forward. Um, But yeah, but then we threw it all out the window with this materialist um, physicalist worldview. And I think that this discussion of the meaning crisis um, with people, you know, the highest levels ever of mental um, health issues and uh, I mean, really just despair all around, I think it partly, at least partly is attributable to that, that we, that people don't have structures of meaning and purpose um, in their lives anymore. And it's a shame. And like, you know, I was one of those people, like (laughs) I talk about in the book and one of the biggest surprises for me was that spirituality was valuable, right? It was valuable. Like it, 
even a simple narrative shift in my mind of, uh, oh, why do we have to live through this horrible life and suffer? Or why do I have to, why, you know, like a victim mentality of like, why is this happening to me? Um, Flipping it around to be like, what lesson am I supposed to be learning? I came here to learn lessons. What am I supposed to be learning? Um, Was like, doesn't seem like it would be, uh, but it was profoundly valuable. Like it changed my whole life experience so drastically. Um, Such a relief, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> You're like, oh, there, there is a reason. And then it's not just, you know, I'm making it sound like it's a leap of faith, but that's what the whole book was, was I wanted to believe that narrative. So I went looking for evidence <laughs> that it could be true because uh, at least for me, and I think for a lot of people coming from Western culture, it's hard to take leaps of faith without some sort of evidence or something, right? You need something to say that there's more. And that's that's what I uh, went looking for. And that's what I put in the book to find that even if we can't definitively prove, which whatever, we can't definitively prove most things in science. Nothing is proven. We never say prove. Um, everything's a theory, but there's enough. <laughs> there's enough to to uh, leave the door open for that. Yeah. And I think also, I just want to say this too, in a lot of cosmology and physics um, and philosophies, there's an ongoing debate about, like you were saying, p- whether panpsychism is, is the ultimate reality or if it's materialism or if it's something else. And I think that there's a lot of you know evolutionary biology. There's a lot of fields converging on, we probably live in a participatory universe, you know, so whether you consider that Wheeler said, I think spiritual or not, I mean, even more recent, uh, yeah, a lot of, uh, there's a ton, there's a ton of, um, philosophers who are kind of converging on, you know, call it spiritual or whatever. Like there's a lot of aspects to it, but in the least, we probably live in a participatory universe. And it does seem like, um, there's some sort of meaning built in. And it's defined in different ways in different cosmologies, but it does seem that multiple, I think, lines of science and philosophy and fields are converging on that, which I think is hopeful because I do think not one worldview will work for everyone, right? No, that's true. Very true. Very wise. And uh, many scientists, many traditional scientists, Western scientists should should take heed (laughs) also. now, quantum physics is is a <laughs> big thing, and it's was actually began over a hundred years ago. But it, it's just like the last few years, quantum physics and quantum quantum mechanics and the quantum field theory have become topical in this in this context. Here, are we perhaps beginning to, by way of of these these findings, corroborate? Uh, Ancient wisdom that, that has been there for thousands of years. I've I've heard references to physicists who now say that space time is doomed. For instance, I listened to a conversation between Donald yeah. Hoffman and yes. Robert Edward Grant yesterday, and it was just fascinating. Uh, you know Donald Hoffman? I think you mentioned him. Yes. In the book. And, yes. Uh, yes. He's also a neuroscientist, and he's mm-hmm. way into these uh, <laughs> this thinking of uh, I mean some kind of a background field or something and this is just an illusion everything is just a i mean what we see is a is a desktop version of what is actually real That's anyway right. you can you can ask yeah. that if you want. 
Yes. Um, yeah. Donald Hoffman, the neuroscientist from UC Irvine, he's great. Um, uh, qu your question was quantum. Okay. Uh, well, quantum, quantum, yeah. Quantum <laughs> physics. Is, is, that's, yeah. is that going to help us to come back to, you know, ancient wisdom and, and, and make us realize that the ancient wisdom was actually correct? Yeah. Um, I think quantum physics is hard. So I'm not a quantum physicist, but I did include it for like a little bit in my book, just a section. But it, and the reason is because, and I can see it from both sides. Some people criticize, you know, they're like, oh, you can't extrapolate quantum effects to um, larger effects. I mean, that's the whole thing is we haven't been able to reconcile Newtonian physics with quantum physics. But there's actually, a, a, and I included some of it in the book, but there's a lot more research now showing uh, quantum effects at uh, under warm biological circumstances that we didn't think were possible. So again, it's like, we don't know everything about, about quantum physics. We're still learning. And um, I, I do like to, you know, sometimes I get frustrated with sometimes with some of the spiritual people who do make the leap, although whatever, what harm is it if it helps people understand? Um, but I do think it's... Well, it's, it's tempting, you know, when you... <laughs> Yeah, no. Yeah, but and people are going to listen if you if you if you mention quantum physics. Oh my god, that's true. <laughs> um, but and I do think there is something there between the parallels, right? So it's like before we had quantum physics, you had all these spiritual texts talk about, you know, whatever. Like, oh, you know, in psychedelics, you can feel like you've taken the consciousness of another person or an animal or the table or something. Like you become that thing, and um, I think when we didn't have quantum physics, but then that comes along and suddenly you have entanglement, right? The phenomenon of entanglement, which is that these two widely separated particles are connected and a change in one simultaneously, meaning no, you know, it's faster than the speed of light, which shouldn't be possible, changes the other. And you have the observer effect, right? The That observing some something changes the outcome. So we have all of these um really interesting, like just pure quantum physics, very scientific findings where when you just look at the, you know, basically the implications, if you dumb it down to English, you know, simple English sentence, what does this mean? It means this. Um, and then you take that and overlay it onto spiritual text and it's like, <laughs> it matches. And obviously that's not a scientific way of doing things, but we don't, you know, we're humans. And just the fact that these, it, it's almost like you've had these spiritual human truths through the history of humanity. And now you finally have a science that shows effects that are explaining these experiences that people have had. So I think maybe we don't have a map from, you know, A to Z of how the human experience maps onto quantum uh, physics yet. But I do think that it shouldn't be totally discounted because yeah, there's, um, there's huh, a resonance there, <laughs> but um, you know, there's similarity. And so I think that, um, so I think, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's nothing mapped for sure, but there's new findings every day. And like you said, a lot of uh, physicists are, are they keep saying space-time is doomed. And so, for example, uh, I remember when I started, I had not heard that, and I did not know that when I first got into this spiritual stuff. And I remember all of the intuitives uh, telling me, there's no space-time on the other side. And I'd be like, what? <laughs> what do you mean other side? There's no other side. You know, in my head, I was like, this is reality. But they would say things like, there's no space-time on the other side. Um, 
I don't know, they would say things that later when I got, I would be reading something purely from physics or cosmology or philosophy. And you would just find that in like a modern day philosopher would say something or a physicist would say, well, we're, you know, we're actually, there might be another dimension um, to our reality where there is no space time. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you're like, oh, <laughs> And you those know, readers, and, they hadn't read those books. Right. You know, and it's like those readers are not reading like, you know, a physics paper. Um, so so I think it's interesting. Um, and I do think that uh, I so I, I mentioned it in my book. Like I I just think, okay, here's another another one that I think is pretty interesting. So uh, intuitives are always talking about light energy. Okay. They say that we are light energy and they're always talking about light energy. And sometimes when you, oh, like Laurelyn Jackson, when she talks about connections between people, she has a book called The Light Between Us. And she says that she can, you know, psychically see that people have these cords of light that connect them to each other. And um, that they're, if you're, you know, connected at one point in time, you're connected forever in some way. And, um, you know, I remember when I read that, uh, I thought, okay, well, you know, <laughs> can we measure this light? What kind of light is it? Why can't we measure it? Whatever. But um, since then, I've been, I, you know, a, a lot of scientists have reached out to me since the book came out. And one of them was a materials scientist for the government for a long time. And he sent me all these articles on biophotons. And there's been a lot of new research showing that, um, Neurons, in addition to communicating uh, within themselves and between neurons, they use electricity and they use chemical. So we say it's electrochemical signal. They also found that they use biophotons. They use light to communicate. <laughs> this is a brand new finding. We've I, this you, neuroscientists. So we, are, we are shining, as they say. Exactly, and I think when you um, that's like that's brand new. That's just coming out. There's a bunch of papers, but it's not common knowledge in neuroscience yet. And um, I think that when you think about the words too that we use, if you just look at our language that we use, when you're happy about something, we say your light. You know, like the light came back to your eyes, yeah. or you're shining when you talk about this person, you know, or whatever it is. Like, I think the language that we use says a lot about underlying things that we may not consciously be aware of. So I think that, well, that's why in my book, I, I suggested, I was like, it's so interesting what these intuitives say, the, the language that they use. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they could be hints about where to explore, what to yeah. explore. Yeah. Scientists should take that seriously and, and look into it. And uh, probably some people have always been able to see those things, to see auras or see the light that that then have uh, been, uh, I mean, <clears throat> entered into the language uh, in, in expressions like you're shining and right. uh, back to your eyes and all that. Now, have you, uh, you seem to have vacuumed every nook and cranny of the <laughs> spiritual realm in the book, but have you... Um, I don't recall seeing you ref- making references to some of the sources of the most ancient spiritual wisdom, like the, the the Gnostics, what they had to say about these things, the Hermetic principles, the Sumerian tablets, the Vedic texts from India. Have you have you looked into those in, in any way? Yeah, I read about them. I I didn't. Yeah, I didn't go into the history of it because I felt like other books had done that really well, oh. and then I didn't know if people would be interested. I think I mentioned the Gnostics in like a sentence, but <laughs> um, yeah, I've done, I've, I've, you know, listened to a lot of 
podcasts and read a lot about those. And I find, again, um, just these principles that seem to pop up over and over again across different cultures and different times in humanity is really interesting. And I think it kind of speaks to, again, our arrogance in this era to think, oh, now we have it figured out. And kind of like everyone before us was dumb. You know, like we we give them no credit whatsoever for being able to, um, you know, d- discern for themselves whether a ritual that they are doing works or doesn't work. And I can still step into old me and um, explain why that's the case, like easily or confirmation bias, or they perceived it wrong, or like I can give the explanations. But if I step back into new me and give our ancestors a more generous runway, you know, do we really think, and again, it's like, we think you know, Newton, a lot of um, Francis Bacon, Galileo, as I mentioned in the book, a lot of them believed in astrology, they believed in another realm, they believed in a spirit ether. Um, So it's like, on the one hand, you give them credit for being geniuses, but except for this thing that they believed in. And it's like, if they were that smart, that they could figure out all these physics, um, you know, I mean, and I get it, like their, their technology was limited, you know, they didn't believe in germs because they didn't have a microscope or whatever, those kinds of things. But I do think we have to give them a little more generosity um, to, I don't think that our ancestor, I don't think that indigenous people would continue to do rituals that were fruitless, right? That didn't work for them in some way. It didn't serve some purpose. So that's what that I think that I would, that's what I would say about that. Mm-hmm. When I had almost almost finished your book, I I thought that ah oh, she hasn't mentioned astrology. But then <laughs> in the last <laughs> chapter, you do exactly that. You you write about astrology, and that you you dabble a little bit in that now. Do you? Or? Mm-hmm. I do. I, I'm, I'm I think... fascinated by with astrology. I've been since I was a kid, really. Yeah. Um. So. It- in my defense. <laughs> um, yeah, you don't have to defend anything. Just not, not, not here, no. at least. <laughs> no, I, um, yeah, astrology was interesting. It was like, it was one of the things that I really didn't pay attention to um, because like most people in Western culture, I thought of the sun sign horoscopes that you read in the magazines and it's those are like sometimes accurate, sometimes ever. But I think that somebody recommended to me, you know, on the journey, someone, they're like, oh, I have this really great astrologer. You should get a reading. So I got a reading and I remember that uh, I, I didn't, I, I wasn't even worried about whether it was accurate or not. Um, it was so psychologically insightful about myself that I was mostly focused on that for a long time. I was like, oh, I learned so much about myself from this. You know, they do a full chart reading. So they look at the whole sky at the moment that you were born, all the planets, not just the sun sign. And I learned so much in that reading and I was just interested, but then I didn't do anything And then uh, these podcasts have changed my life. I'm telling you, I randomly heard a podcast. Um, Actually, it was um, Buddha at the Gas Pump. And the episode, Rick Archer. Yeah, yeah, Rick Archer. And the episode was with um, Richard Tarnas, um, who wrote Passion of the Western Mind, which is like the entire history of Western culture, how it came to be, and then Cosmos and Psyche. And Richard Tarnas is such an impressive person in and of himself, right? He was at Harvard. He did his PhD um, on LSD psychotherapy. He was at Esalen, um, you know, Jungian depth psychology, all that. So 
I listened to this episode of him say, I never believed in astrology, but I decided to, you know, like we learned about it at Esalen. I tracked it for 30 years with world events and personal charts. And then he's like, I wrote this book, Cosmos and Psyche, to summarize how and why I think astrology works. So I ordered the book immediately and it's humongous. It's like the, one of the biggest books I own. And I read it in a week because I was so captivated by it. And he gave the best um, possible model uh, for how these things could work. Because one of my my mental problems at the point in time when I heard his podcast was how could a palm reading and coffee grounds and an intuitive reading and astrology all tell you things about your life. And, um, you know, he says that it's, you know, it, it's basically the micro, we are a microcosm of the macrocosm and that uh, everything is a piece of the universe. It's like a hologram. So holographic yeah, holographic. So that uh, any part, right, any subsystem of the system has all the information and so you can use anything <laughs> to get what you need and and that's how it works and the, just the way that he described it finally made sense I feel like I had heard it before but the way that he described it I just finally understood it and I thought of course you know and then and then suddenly you don't need you don't have a need to explain exactly how the planet's influencing us can tell you how your life, then those problems are just gone <laughs> from your mind. And so I think that anybody who seriously, and there's a lot of scholars in astrology, like people who are very well-read, who've read the ancient, you know, Greek texts, who've spent all their time, they're like super um, experts on ancient Egypt and Greece, like, you know, way smarter than me on those things. Um, they spend their whole lives tracking and noting and documenting mm. astrology. And I just think that that's great and interesting. And again, I think it's not enough to brush them off and say, oh, they're they're dumb. They're missing something. Well, most you people know? are brushing that off. They, they don't know anything about astrology. And that's, that's it's a catch-22 because it's it's uh, to them, it would be unworthy to even, even begin studying it because it's so dumb, right? Right. So they can just discard it. <laughs> yeah, and that's fine <laughs> to each their own. But for the people who do, I think it's pretty useful. I think it can tell you, yeah, give you kind of a sneak peek at like themes in your life. So yeah, yeah I tend to have the the view that it's not really the the star constellations in this case. I mean, if we talk about the twelve zodiac signs, for instance, it's not the star constellations themselves that do anything, but it's it's every every single point in space time. Okay, now they say that space time is doomed, but anyway, let's assume yes. there is a space time. Right. Well, anyway, for all practical purposes, there is a space time for us living in the three dimensional world that we are now on Earth, and and from this perspective, we have we have a, a universe around us. We have a solar system, and then we have a whole universe, and we have every, everything outside there. And every point in space time has its own quality. That's how I see it. Every point in right. space time has its own quality, yeah. and it comes back in like it's in spirals. So not two points in space time are exactly the same. They're all unique. But they kind of um, rhyme, you know. So when you come back to the same place, the same point in space-time uh, next year, you're not exactly at the same point in space-time, but 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 similar. And then you have right. yes. similar aspects. You have similar traits. Right. 
Is you what cycles, I mean? yeah. Um, I think actually something you mentioned is really important too. Uh, another uh, aspect to all of this that helped me eventually drop the um, mechanical reductionist um, lens that I was looking through everything was the quality of things. So you, and I think astrology, I don't know if it was astrology, probably um, astrology talks about the quality of time, at least Richard Charnas, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm sorry, what's it called? The kind he does archetypal, archetypal astrology, right? So he talks about the archetypes and how they are qualities, right? They give, and that's what astrology is. It's like the quality to a certain time. And I think that's what Tarnas does so beautifully in his book is say, okay, these were the transits in the sky, and this is the quality of the time. So when you think about the 60s, the late 60s, right? You think about the Beatles and you think about the the um the revolutionary vibe the that was going on the like disruption um and he's like that's a quality to the time that's hard to measure like with science or like you have to come up with all these metrics and whatever but it's like a quality to the time and each time point like you're saying has a quality to it um and i think that that kind of actually maps on a little bit to the consciousness debate like in neuroscience there's the easy problem which is measuring neural correlates and their activity. Um, and then the hard problem is mapping that to our experience and our experience is a quality, right? It's like a, you're experiencing the quality of the moment. It's, um, a subjective experience of like the flavor of something, the sensation, the feeling, the experience. And those are things that are hard to measure and pinpoint and reduce and turn into mechanics. And I think that um I think that, that kind of mapping and understanding that there's another dimension. So some, you know, and some, I'm sure you know, but for listeners, some theories of consciousness actually propose, like Descartes, you know, the dual dual, like there, yeah. there's mind and matter. And that it mm -hmm. kind of maps onto that. And like there's a quality that does is not matter, that that is phenomenal that we cannot measure, but that we experience. And I think that that's where I think um, like the thinking and language around astrology and some of the spiritual stuff really helps you understand that. Like with the tarot too, like if you pull a card, each card has a quality and an yeah. energy and an understanding of the, you know, the wholeness of it, the whole holistic picture of what it's trying to convey. And again, those things are really hard to break down into pieces. Mm. You use that as well? Yes. <laughs> I love, I, love I love it. I love it. Uh, yeah, I have I have a few decks here. My my ex wife uh, gives me tarot decks sometimes, and I I use them sometimes. I think it's fascinating. Especially I love that. Major Arcana, of course, but uh, you should. Uh, I, I'm not a very good reader, but I kind of do it sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, but I think being exposed to those, right? Like you know, that's something I would have rolled my eyes at as a scientist, but it's added. Yeah, but you did whole... listen to coffee ground readings. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. What's what's more woo-woo, coffee ground readings or tarot? I mean, these cards yeah. at least they have pictures on them, so you can that's interpret. True, yeah. <laughs> um, and that's that was something my mom would say, like, or that was interesting from a actually scientist mind's perspective to watch her do readings, is because she will describe qualities of things mm -hmm. and she'll say it's like this. And then I, you know, uh, let me think of an example. Um Oh, like she would see, let's say she would see a person and she would be describing to me their personality. Like she'd like, oh, this person is assertive and, you know, goes after what they want. And then I would say something like, oh, are they 
arrogant or, you know, something. And she'd be like, no, it's not that. And then she would clarify the quality of what she's trying to convey. And I think I remember that kind of thing was hard for me to understand from a science perspective, but that's what this um, whole realm adds to your human experience, right? Is this whole dimension of the quality of things that you cannot reduce and break down. Like they don't make sense um, alone, right? It's the all of it together is what makes it's sense. Beautifully said, and and it's often like that. You you sense in a way what something is, or how a person is, or how it mm-hmm. feels, or how you intuit it. But you can't really find the words. You try to explain. I mean, m- much like you were describing just now. If you you have this sense, this feeling of of a person, you can't really put words to it. You just I, right. I don't know. It's just I mean, no, it's like yeah. that all the time. And it's there, there's this um. A book. It's by a psychotherapist. I think it's called Focusing, but it it does that. It's like this activity where he's like, you sit, you clear your mind, you think of a person that you know, and you just feel like the whole sense of them. And he's like, you know, you don't break it down into he's smart, he's tall, he has blue eyes, he has it. You don't do that. He's kind, he's creative. He's like, you don't do that. You just have a sense of the person, and and that's I think exactly. And I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, talking about people who are very much in love or who have a, a very loving and good relationship. That's exactly how it is for these people. I mean, couples, we all know about that. I mean, we either we we have such a relationship, we're in such a relationship ourselves, or we know people who are, and uh, they don't have to define the other person. Right. They exactly. Define them. They just, they just sense who they are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, you might love all these things about them, but a lot of times you just love them. Yeah. If it's unconditional, <laughs> it's, you don't you don't put it in words. You just accept. Yeah. So we've been talking for a long time, and you you might not believe this, but I have I have like ten or twelve more questions. But I knew that I wasn't be wouldn't be able to to ask them all. I would love to do this again if it's if it's possible at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, just yeah, finally talking about uh, your worldview a little bit here. After realizing that there is a whole world that conventional science says virtually nothing about do you suspect that the scientific community is similarly biased in in other areas other quote unquote controversial areas might be you know climate health human origins what do i know all kinds of things have you started suspecting that or 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 do you leave that aside and focus on these um, matters i never really thought about that <laughs> I mean, I think that since you discovered like, that this is an area that's actually being shunned by by conventional science, yeah. maybe there are other areas that are also shunned. I, I don't know. Oh yeah, I mean, I think you hear that with people like Graham Hancock talks about archaeology oh, yeah, yeah. in that way. Mm-hmm. Like I would never have been aware of that if he didn't talk about that. Um, but it's and I don't know anything about archaeology or the field of archaeology. I don't know. But um, it w- it's not hard for me to understand and believe what What's he's saying because, yeah. yeah, because it is it is true. I mean, a lot of times it's not nefarious. I don't like. I do think people think it's like nefarious or planned, and it's really mm. not. It's really mm. just like that's how you're trained. That's what you believe. You're too Habit. busy to look outside of what you're doing, and you don't have time for it. You know, you're like you have no energy or time to deal with it. So, I mean, I don't think it's nefarious but um yeah of course i think i think 
science is funded in the United States is funded by the NIH, the National Institute of Health, and the National Science Foundation. And those are funded by the U.S. government, which, you know, like each year they decide where the budget goes. So where the where they decide the budget goes is what gets studied. Mm, so, of course, it's biased. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. And like the other money that comes is from rich foundations. So it's whatever, you know. Zuckerberg or Sam, whoever, like whoever's rich, Bill Gates, um, those foundations also fund science, but it's whatever they're interested in. So of course All it's biased. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, great. That's that's maybe another conversation, but it's kind of interesting to to hear what you your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I don't think it's nefarious. That but... opened up in your mind that mm, maybe it's not as I've been told in this area and that area. Anyway, I I do think I do uh, one thing I would say I do think um, unfortunately, just because of the way science works, it does have a self perpetuating problem. I and I talk about this in the book. I don't think innovation is re rewarded, even though they always claim that innovation is. It's not. When you write a grant, you have to be so careful to toe the line between a previous research and a new thing that you're proposing. So true innovation is not rewarded in mm -hmm. science um it's incremental and so you know in that way it, it's hard for people uh, you have to work within the system you're given right like scientists don't even make that much money to begin with <laughs> so like you're trying to work within this system that you're in and it's not easy because they have to do really silly proposals that like move just a little bit further um, but don't shock the reviewers who are going to mm. be like, where are you making this claim? Please cite all the research that made you think that this was an acceptable thing to propose. You know, there, so there's a lot of bureaucracy, of so course, maybe like then, everything else. In order to get somewhere, it's necessary to have these mavericks that we have out there. We need big money to fund people who want to be innovative. And it's not going to happen from the government uh foundations it's just not going to happen they're too slow and they're too there's not enough money to be reckless with it so there's a call like for patrons to come forward to fund people who want to do really innovative research i mean that's what's needed to to have breakthroughs <laughs> you were talking about the uh your um view on the on the media the the role of the media in this context yeah i think um I mean, I think in general, scientists are not trained to speak. I mean, I know this. We are not trained to speak to the media. It's really funny. I have a friend who works in Hollywood, and I told him this once, and he never stopped laughing about it. But I said, in graduate school, they give us like a one sheet um, that says how to talk to journalists. <laughs> and it's like has bullet points. And that's all the media training you ever get. Oh, and yeah. then scientists like are, you know, to get respect, we talk in jargon and long, complicated sentences. So when we when we speak to journalists, it's like freaking disaster, you know, like um, they always end up having like one usable quote from you because the rest was jargon. Um, and I and I remember thinking about this with the in regards to the spiritual stuff. It's it's just so interesting because there's definitely a bias in the media because it's a bias in Western mainstream culture against uh things that are just not accepted by the world view materialism so and i think you've i've been ever since this a uh, quote unquote awakening or whatever my flip i read 
articles really carefully. <laughs> I read the words they use really carefully because I'm like, isn't journalism supposed to be uh, objective? And but it's not like it's a lot not- of New York Times articles I read, which I you know, love the New York Times, but they use all kinds of uh, yeah biased words when they're talking about you know, like Reiki or I don't know, energy healing or gurus or shamans or whatever. They, they always, you know, the alleged or whatever, they use kind of words that make it like, it's a slight nudge, but it's a nudge. It's a bias. And I remember thinking it would just be so nice, or we need more people who are trained in fields like science and other fields um, to write you know, to do writing, because we understand that, like, I think also a lot of things are lost in uh, journalistic pieces that I read are the nuance, which is important. They want everything simplified. And there are ways to uh, explain the nuance in simple ways, but they usually just cut the nuance out. And I think that that's a problem. I think that I understand that we think the public is stupid, but like we can't continue in this way. Like people have to understand that biology and life and reality is nuanced. And I don't think we should, um, you know, I think there's ways to communicate. I think so much work needs to be put into communication on both sides. It's it's a real shame. But yeah, mm-hmm. there needs to be more actually unbiased publications. I agree. And and there's no reason to believe that this is the only area where the media is biased. No, no, no. There's a lot of bias. Yeah. I'm really keenly aware of it um, now when I read things and it's, it's a shame. This is, and this is why I said what I said about either we need experts to be able to write, you know, journalistically, or at least have the journalist work more closely with the experts is because so let's say you have an article on, um, I don't know, like let's say energy healing. Um, you'll what I have found in the last year as I read these articles, you'll you'll basically the journalist will ask experts who have not necessarily checked the literature, right? So they might ask like a physician, an MD, to be like, is there any evidence for Reiki healing? Or let's, I'm just using that as an example, but a subtle energy. And the doctor who, again, uh, physicians and scientists love being experts. We do not like telling people we don't know things even when we don't. So usually, unfortunately, it's a human personality trait left hemisphere brain thing that I will create an answer for you and with authority and certainly tell tell you because I think it must be true, right? Because all of my colleagues seem to think that this has been studied and debunked. So I'm going to tell this reporter, oh yeah, there's no evidence for subtle energy healing to work. So then the journalist goes and publishes it. Meanwhile, not a single person related to this article has searched the scientific literature and then it turns out there actually is evidence for it. And I see a lot of that in um, science reporting in in the media. And I think that that's a huge problem. And that's what I found when I did my book was you read all these articles and you'll hear journalists say, well, there's no evidence for psychic phenomena. That's been studied and debunked. But you know what? That's not true. That whole sentence is not true. (laughs) I know. And you also point out that when they say that, which often happens, there's no evidence for that. There's no evidence for that. That often means that it hasn't been investigated even. Exactly. And that, oh, that is so, that one really gets under my skin because they say it all the time. There's no evidence for that. That is not 
because people who read it take it as it's been studied and there was no evidence, but usually it means this has not been studied. So therefore there is no evidence, but you know, it's disingenuous to say that because it's misleading. It misleads the public. Instead, you know, they should be honest about it and be like, this has not been investigated. This has not been funded by, by enough people. There have not been enough studies to definitively say one way or another that, you know, I, I don't, yeah. Do you know why they do that? Why do they do that? <laughs> they really shouldn't do that. There's so much bias. I mean, journalists are just people and 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 scientists are people and uh, we have all yeah. these flaws. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> flaws. Uh, but it's it's good to see it clearly and to see what is going on so that you can, yeah, read between the lines as it were. Yes. Yeah. It's important, yeah, to be aware. But that's something I've noticed, and it and it that's that's why I called it out in the book because I just thought it was so I saw I saw it happening a lot, especially with COVID. Like I would have just read an art, you know, a scientific article, and then I would read something in the New York Times, and then they would say, um, "There's been no evidence for that," and I'd be like, <laughs> "Suspicious." <laughs> I was like, "Yeah," and again, it's it's most it's not usually I'm assuming not nefarious. It's just that nobody bothered to to search, you know, Google Scholar, and they're not trained to read the articles. Right. So that's why it's important for the experts to work closely with journalists. Mm. Yeah. Mona, it's been fantastic to have this conversation with you. Uh, are you working on the second book or what are your plans <laughs> right now? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sort of yeah, collecting sort notes, of, okay. ideas. Um, but yeah, I write a newsletter on psychedelics and altered states and the transpersonal and everything weird. You can find that on Substack. It's called the Brave New World of Psychedelic Science. It's all also on my website, which is just my name. It's Mona Sobani, PhD.com. Yes. yes. And uh, a collaborator and I are creating a few. Uh, we have to plan them, but we're doing a few science and spirituality retreats. So we'll be announcing those um, soon. So but is like that website where people would should go if they want to know more about you and your work? The the the, the website you mentioned there. Yes. Yeah. Everything's everything's there. Okay. I'll put a link in the description, of course. Monosopane com or dot org. Dot com. Dot com. Okay. <laughs> so good luck with your um, continued quest to bridge science and spirituality. Now and thank you for being a guest on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun.